Well, let me invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 15. And let me warn you, to, you might want to put on a seatbelt for this one. Because this text is quite the text. It's God's Word to us. It is what we need to hear today. And we're going to do our best to expound on its truth and for the Holy Spirit to help us so that we would not just listen and hear, but be able to apply it to our lives. So if you're new to Providence Road, you might not know that we go through books of the Bible. It's not always what we do, but it's very typically what we do. And we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel for several months now. And we're currently in Samuel 15. So it is long, so, but it's worth the read. It's God's word. Um, if you do not own your own Bible, if you're visiting us and you don't have a Bible, if you are a regular and do not have your own Bible, please, in our welcome area in the corner over there, after the service, we have Bibles there that we want to give away to you if you don't have one. Obviously, I know that we live in a day where we use devices and cell phones and tablets and things alike, but there's something about a book as well that we do not want to lose sight or lose the interaction of actually interacting with a book. And, and so the Bible in your hand it is a beautiful thing. It's God's word, his inerrant inspired word. So 1 Samuel 15, let's get right into this text. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. I'll read out loud, you follow along. It says this. And Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, and 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay it waste in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you show kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord, it came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it, it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel 
And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Bless be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are, a little, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you to be the king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice, the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being the king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Agog said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. 
But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king over Israel. I told you to have your seatbelt done. Let's pray. Father, your word has been read. Your truth has gone forth. And now, Holy Spirit, we need you to instruct us, to teach us your truth as we consider what we have just read and the shock of it all and the consequences of sin and the reality of judgment and grace. Lord, I pray that we would leave today with a greater awareness of your holiness but also a greater trust in that if it's not for your grace and mercy, there will be no hope for us. So strip us of pride, of self-righteousness, of works-based salvation, and crush us. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, remind us that if it's not for his righteousness, we couldn't stand before you. We thank you for him. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for living the life that we could not, and for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. Now, Father, among us in a room this size, there's men and women and young people who do not know the saving work of Jesus. Would you do, Holy Spirit, what only you can do? Would you open the hearts of sinners that they would come out from under the shadow of perceived safety, and that they would see that the wrath of God is upon sinners and that only running to the saving arms of Christ is where sinners can be redeemed, have eternal life, and have a future glory with you. So be with us now as we study, as we consider. Holy Spirit, convince us of these truths and bring conviction as needed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most people have issues confronting others. Oh, there are those who love it. Putin right now, he has no issues confronting Ukraine and the rest of the world. Donald Trump is a guy who loves to confront anything. But there are people who are very confrontational in sinful ways. But many of us have issues with just being before somebody to confront them with a sin. And yet in the un- imperfect ways that man does it, Natural man, without the saving knowledge of Christ, it tends and leads to, to destruction oftentimes. But confrontation is part of what it means to be a Christian. Because we are to, as believers, confront one another. Why? Because we're supposed to be living for the Lord if we have trusted in Christ. We're supposed to live a life of obedience. Followers of Jesus Christ obey whom they follow. It is true that it is difficult, but because of the Spirit's work in us, we could, in humility, confront one another. There's passages of scriptures, Galatians 6, if a brother's caught in a trespass, you who are more spiritual, restore such a brother in humility, because he says, because that might be you tomorrow. Or Matthew 18, if a brother has sinned against you, you go to him and you tell him his faults and If he repents, you have won a brother. If he doesn't listen to you, bring some witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, then eventually, Jesus says, you take it to the church and you confront them with the entire church to pray and 
he still doesn't repent, then you treat him as an unbeliever. God's people have always been called to, in humility, confront one another out of necessity to staying in step with the call that we have upon our lives as Christians who are called to be followers and obedient to the Savior. Now in our text, we find that if anyone has the call upon their life to be obedient to the Lord, to live in light of God's word, it is the king of Israel, King Saul. And so in verse one, we find immediately that that Samuel, the prophet, the priest of Israel, he comes to King Saul with a word from the Lord. He has instructions for Saul. And he reminds him that he is the one who was anointed to be the king of Israel. And he has directives for him from the Lord that are very straightforward. Verse 2 and 3 tells us what he is to do. He is to go to the city of Amalek and he is to destroy everything. As a matter of fact, he says, don't spare anyone. Devote everything to destruction. Men, women, children, infants, oxen, sheep, camel, donkey, everyone and everything. The question is why? Well, right before in verse 2, he says that he has noted what Amalek did to Israel, opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 25, way back when, generations before, when Israel had come out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness, it was Amalek, the Amalekites, who gave Israel a very hard time. In their weakness and in in their exhaustion of coming out from Egypt, this nation was upon them, was threatening them. And all the way in Deuteronomy 25, the Lord vows to give his people rest from his enemies and vows to blot out the memory of Amalek. The day of the Amalekites was coming. God had already pronounced it and the day had come. Saul, these are your instructions. Pass judgment, my judgment upon the Amalekites. Now, we read that, you read that, or you just heard that, and I'm like, what in the world? What kind of God would kill men, women, children, infants, and everything that exists in a nation? Why would God do that? Well, we need to understand what's happening here, because there's many people who say, the God of the Old Testament is this wretched, evil God, warlord, that had no compassion. No, no, we need to understand that the same God that created the heavens and the earth, from the foundations of the world, he's had a plan of redemption, and he's a God who is holy and just, and that the worst expression of God's wrath was put on his son, Jesus Christ, in Calvary. We need to understand what exactly is happening here by first saying what is not. Here's what God is not doing. He's not giving Israel permission to act like pirates and barbarians to go and rout out another nation to loot all their belongings for their own benefit. That's not what the Lord is asking of Saul. 
Neither are they like Russia invading Ukraine now, seeking their own national interest and to gain for themselves more territory. That is not the case. Or neither is this like the Old West where there's a gunfight where this town ain't big enough for both of us type deal. That's not what's happening. No, no, God has determined of a vow that he had promised from before that judgment would come to this nation, the Amalekites. And a people who have already been promised for destruction, like every other people group and nation in the world, deserves God's wrath and destruction. And God had decided that the runway had ended Judgment has come to those who are worthy of his judgment. They're all sons and daughters of Adam, inherited the sin of Adam, rebelled against God. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to judge the Amalekites. It is just because they have rejected my holiness. And you, Saul, and Israel will be the agent, the tool which I use to judge this people. There's nothing for you to take. There's nothing for you to take advantage of. This is not about you. This is about my justice, my holiness, ultimately my glory. That is why you devote everything to destruction. And let me tell us that if we have issues with God performing such acts of justice, taking a people out who deserve his punishment, if we have issues with that, we really do not understand the holiness of God. And we really do not understand the gravity of sin. If we're shocked to see the extent of God's wrath and we dare say how unfair is God, it really reveals how little we understand who God is and who we're not. Because in light of our offenses against the Lord, if we really understood the gravity of sin and how much we have fallen from grace, how much we have offended the God who created us, if we really understood, we would be asking a different question, not say, how is that fair? No, we would be asking, how in the world are we still here? (coughs) Why has he not judged us? As a matter of fact, what should shock us is not the fact that he shows judgment. What should shock us is that he shows grace. That should be the thing that we should be scratching our head about. But clearly in verses 2 or 3 and 3, the command was to destroy. Everything was for destruction. And it's extremely arrogant for us to think, God, how dare you do such a thing? He has a right, because he's God. So Saul responds in verse 4. He's ready to go. He's initially obedient. He assembles his army, 200,000 men, and thousands of men are gathered for this fight. 
the Kenites, he spares this people group that live among the Amalekites. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, was from this people group. They were friendly to Israel at the time, and, and so God is sparing them, but they live among the Amalekites, and he tells them, hey, hey, you have an opportunity. Leave and be spared. And sure enough, Saul comes in, attacks and destroys Almost everything, almost everything, except the king, Agog, Agag, and some of the spoil. We find in verse 9 that not only Saul made this decision, but Saul and the people, and they took for themselves the sheep and the oxen and the fat calves and the lambs and all that was good, they kept, and they destroyed only what was despised and worthless. Oh, they looked more like pirates than actual tools of judgment from the Lord. And verse 11 tells us that God expresses regret. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Oh, there's so much debate about verses like these. We see in verse 11 that God regrets. Some translation says that God repents. Now what does that mean that God is regretful or that God even repents? Well, let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean, it is not meant to show that God was somehow flustered, that he had an oversight, that he somehow made a mistake. Oh my goodness, if I would have known that this was going to happen, I would have had appointed Saul as king. That's not the case. Because we know from the, from the testimony of the scriptures that although we have verses like these, we have to harmonize this with the truth of the scriptures regarding our God who is sovereign, who is omniscient, who is omnipresent, who is unknowing, who is aware of all the affairs of wretched man. And he is the one who ordains all things. Like Ephesians 1, 11 would tell us that all things are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. Or in Acts chapter 4, when Peter stands up after the day of Pentecost and he preaches to the masses and he speaks about Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, how they murdered Jesus, but he realizes and he acknowledges that all this happened according to whatever God's whatever God had predestined to happen, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, the passage says. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, it says this, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes, whatever happens and whatever is, has always filtered through the sovereign hands of God. Nothing catches him by surprise. Everything has a purpose, a redemptive purpose ultimately that brings glory to his name and exalts the Savior. So what is it that God 
regrets. Why is the author writing in such a way? And, and the, this happens in other places of the scriptures. Right before the flood in Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that God, that God regretted having made man on the earth. And I think, and theologians would think, to be consistent with the character of God, that God is a God who grieves disobedience. That on, on one hand, all things are ordained, but on the other hand, he responds in ways and allows us to understand through human feeling a way for us to understand the heart of God. He regrets. We could say that he is grieving over the fact that Saul has disobeyed. I mean, we, we see this throughout the whole scripture. Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. And the shortest verse of the Bible, and Jesus wept. He knows he's about to raise him from the dead. He knows the consequences of sin. He knows the redemptive purposes for the joy that was set before him, that he's going to undo all this. But in the midst of ordaining all these things, of allowing all of these things to exist for this grand purpose, in that moment, there's incredible grief. He cried because look what sin does. Well, he's grieved and he repent. He, he is God who is grieving over the sin of Saul. He regrets him as king. We see this again in verse 35. And if we want to understand that even further, verse 11 also tells us that Samuel grieved deeply cried all night to the Lord. So think about that. Samuel, a mere fallen sinner, tossing and turning all night, wrestling with the Lord, grieving over the disobedience of Saul. If Samuel could manifest such grief, how much more would God, whom sin was against, When his people do that which is evil, it bothers the Lord. So God, he commands Saul to obey, and he's grieved that he disobeys. So what happens? Samuel has to go to Saul to confront him. So starting in verse 12, that next morning Saul, uh, Samuel wakes up with a heavy heart, but he's received word from the Lord. He needs to go and confront Saul. So he finds out, they tell him that Saul is doing great. He's created a monument for himself. He is celebrating his victory. And as Samuel is arriving to the place where Saul is at, he arrives to a some type of victory party. He is celebrating his own successes. He has erected this monument for himself. The king of Israel erecting a monument for himself. This is in the likings of pagans. Nebuchadnezzar built a monument for himself. Caesar will build a monument for himself. Emperors, bring it to our day, dictators make monuments for themselves for their own glory. And here is Saul doing the same. God's people, there were moments in time where they 
where they made monuments. If you remember Joshua chapter 6, when they finally go across the Jordan River, the instructions were to gather these 12 stones and to stack them up, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was there that, and it always happens this way, that these stones would remind us of what God has done to save his people. Whatever, whatever was formed, whatever was put together was always for that reason that we would be reminded not of ourselves, but that we would be reminded of the Lord. But Saul, who had the instructions to be the tools in the hands of God to bring judgment upon some sinners, he brings that to himself to rob God of his glory, to build himself up, to remind the people of his greatness. But how fitting that this monument would actually serve to expose the deliberate disobedience of Saul. And when Samuel sees Saul, it's interesting, when they finally meet, it is, it is Saul who goes out and he speaks first to Samuel. Verse 13, he's like, oh Samuel, it is so good to see you. Listen, I have obeyed all that the Lord has said. And I wonder that moment if Saul was trying to cover something up, if he was trying to manipulate the situation, if he was trying to jump ahead of what might be in the, from the words of Samuel, a correction or a rebuke. Or maybe he's just completely ignorant of what has happened. We don't know. But we perhaps could tell that Saul doesn't have a troubled conscience. Somehow Saul, he could greet Samuel and speak of his faithfulness to obey the Lord. All the while in the camp, this military camp, this isn't back home. The camp is full of oxen and sheep and even the king Agag is in the camp as a prisoner. Saul is either completely deceived, he's blind, or he's ignorant. What a lesson for us. because We want to distance ourselves from Saul Part of the reason why Saul is here to us, for us to be reminded how much like Saul we are. How, how we can so easily be deceived by our own sin. How easily we could be about covering up and manipulating the circumstances to the point of being blinded to the true gravity of our sins. Oftentimes, others might see the sin in us, and we have a way of choosing to ignore it willfully or ignorantly. This is how sin operates in our lives, and we need to be aware of it, something that Saul is oblivious to, I think. Oh, sin will destroy you. Persistent, willful, unrepentant, blinding sin will cause you to manipulate, to distort, to use others in order to keep it up. As one said, sin will take you f farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to spend, and always keep you longer than you want to stay. And I ask us, when was the last time 
that you ask the Lord, Lord, show me my sin. When was the last time you were before the Lord? Naked, spiritually heart open. Lord, show me my sin. When was the last time you spoke like Psalm 139 at the very end where the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. In verse 14, we see how Samuel responds to Saul. And the confrontation is thick. The tension is thick. He's like, you say you've done the will of God? You've obeyed? Uh, What's this cattle I hear? What's this sheep I hear? These things are not supposed to be here. In the midst of all that, Saul has the audacity to say, Samuel, it's so good to see you. Samuel is like, stop. Oh, let's, let's just soak that in for just a minute in that moment. So often we act as if we are obeying God to the T. And yet there's so much evidence of disobedience around us. We pride ourselves in how much we serve the Lord and follow the Lord. And we think that we're just living our lives in utter obedience. And if you really examine our lives, we even think that we could get away with some things. But what if, what if, 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 what if Saul would have responded differently? What if Saul would have responded as we should respond to sin? What if, what if he would have understood at the moment his sin? What if he would have hated what had happened? What is it that he should have done? Well, first he should have repented, turned to God, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He would actually uh, possibly uh, not lose his kingdom. If he would repent and lead the people well and get rid of everything that was supposed to be led to destruction, remove it from the camp, this is not what he does. Because Saul is full of pride. We know how James says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in our sin, in our persistent sin, pride begins to build. That does not let you repent. Much less the grace of God won't be afforded to you when you have a prideful heart that refuses to acknowledge your sin. Saul refuses to see it. He does not see it. He cannot see it. He could have repented. He could have sought forgiveness. He could have made things right. And God would have had mercy on me. If Saul would have said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to turn from my sin and make things right. Things would have been different. But he doesn't. 
As a matter of fact, he doubles down. Look at verse 15 with me. Saul said, after Samuel's like, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your, your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Oh, I want you to notice what he says. He says, all the things, Samuel, that you're saying we did wrong, the people did it. And all the things that were done right, those things that we left to destruction, we did it. And we did it to bring sacrifices to your God. Interesting that Saul doesn't say, my God. Oh, it's tragic. Saul is trying to make his willful disobedience seem noble and righteous, pleasing to the Lord. We do this. We do this. We do this in different ways. Maybe one way we do it is, is, is perhaps identify somebody here. Hey, you know what? Uh, man, if I could figure out a way to cheat on my taxes to give more money to the church. Oh, oh, um, you know what? I know I'm dating a non-believer, but it's really my pursuit of evangelism. I'm trying to win this person for Jesus. Oh, 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 look, yes, I lied to my spouse, but I did so for their good. And on and on. Saul, I, yes, I took of these things. They took it, but I have it here. But we're going to use it to make sacrifices to your God. What's wrong? What did I do that's so bad? We, too, are motivated to take our disobedience and try to fill Flip it into obedience and righteousness. As long as we could cover it up and manipulate it and keep it in the shadows but have a good face before people, we could keep on that game for a very long time. Now, if that's you, repent of your sin. If you're willfully living in disobedience, Repent to the Lord. And I dare say that that is the need for every single one of us. Notice that Saul didn't say, my God, he says, your God. This is how disconnected Saul is from the one true living God. He quickly distanced himself from the situation but that was easy for him to do. Why? Because his heart was already far from the Lord. And that too was already revealed to Samuel. He knew this already. This is why the confrontation was difficult and hard, but yet necessary. And we find that in verse 16, we find that Samuel sees right through Saul. Because he says in verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. 
I will tell you what the Lord said to me the night, this night. And Saul's like, okay, tell me. Okay, speak. Samuel's like, enough with your cuentos. Enough with your games. He says, stop, knock it off. Listen, I know everything that's going on. The Lord has revealed it to me last night. You need to stop, and you need to stop making excuses. And Saul is like in this, he's building up his arrogance all the more. He's like, okay, tell me, speak. What did the Lord tell you? And Samuel goes on in verse 17 to remind him, though you are little in your eyes, and you're not, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? In other words, what, what happened, Saul, to the day where you were terrified of being king? Where you're hiding behind baggages and when you're being anointed and, and, and all these issues that you have. Look where you've come to where you're making monuments for yourself and just worried about your glory and, and you're so blinded by your sin. Do you remember how little you were and how amazingly the Lord, he gives you this mission and you willfully disobeyed. In fact, you were so not doing things right that verse 19 says that you pounced on the spoil. You weren't even thinking of, man, this might be not pleasing to the Lord. I, I got the instruction. No, no, you went for it. You desired it. Same imagery of the previous chapter. You remember when Saul told his, his men, no eating until I avenge myself from the Philistines? And in desperation, at the end of the day, they saw some animals from the spoil and they just chopped them up on the ground, didn't drain the blood, and just ate the meat. They pounced on it and they ate it raw. In the same way, Saul, Samuel is saying, you guys pounced on the spoil on all these things that were supposed to be devoted to destruction, you pounced on it and took it for yourself. And immediately Saul gets defensive in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, listen, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, I don't know. I, I I don't know if Samuel already knew about Agag. He's like, but till now I've been talking about animals here. You had the king of the here of the Amalekites. What does Saul want to do? That where he's like, look, look. I want you to know what good a thing I've done. Yes, you could say, hey, you know what? I, yeah, we brought some animals. They're going to be sacrificed. But look what a good work I've done. I have the king of the Amalekites here. And his efforts to do damage control. And his efforts to save face before Samuel without caring about what God thinks. His abstinent sin, his blinded, his blinding arrogance. How he's, in verse 21, blaming others. He blames the people. I have the king, Agog, that's a good thing. We caught him, we defeated the Amalekites. But whatever you're talking about, Samuel, look, look, it, it's the people. They did it in verse 21. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. 
was trying to justify his actions by saying this will be all sacrifice to God. And then Samuel, he goes on to tell him, is it, it not better to obey than to sacrifice? Obedience is better than ritual and religion. Obedience is better before the eyes of God. He doesn't want your sacrifices and your religious activity. He doesn't want your ritual and your good works. God wants your heart. This is something for us to be reminded. We cannot just do some religious activity that will then compensate for, blot out your sin and disobedience. It does not work that way. Religion thinks it works that way. There is no good works that will cancel out your bad works. Don't offer me, God says, some formal ritual and thinking that on the basis of that, all things will be fine. Don't think you could just cancel your sin by just doing some external thing, some external action. During the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, the Catholic Church was selling indulgences for the forgiveness of sin. You could buy a certificate. You would pay for it. You would have a certificate that then releases you from the consequences of those sins. That is superstition. That doesn't forgive anyone of their sin. All the rituals that you could do, go to confessional, pray a rosary, do face whatever direction, do whatever, whatever your religion and your way of seeing God and through external religious activity, none of that will ever blot out your sin or appease God's wrath against your sin. Because Christianity is not about external religious activity. Christianity is about a transformed heart that was, for, that was forgiven on the basis of meeting God's law and obeying God's law. And we'll get to that now. And it's interesting that Samuel would say, for rebellion, verse 23, is as the sin of divination. Let me speak in our context. To think that you could just pray something, do something, do some religious activity, pay something, to do anything external, any ritual, any activity. The author of 1 Samuel is saying, and I'm speaking in our terms, it is the same as brujeria and santeria. It is witchcraft. It is divination. It is not how God's people respond. So you think of those brujeros that are way out there, they're doing those things around the corners of Hialeah? Or anywhere else in Miami, as a matter of fact. Sometimes we're not so far from there when we trust in ritual more than in obedience and faith. Oh, how 
This is how God's enemies behave. This is how pagans behave, trying to appease the gods by some sort of ritual, some pseudo-obedient act. If you remember early on in the book of 1 Samuel, when the Philistines, they captured the ark of God, they took the ark and they put it into the temple of Dagon and Dagon was falling over and eventually they didn't know what to do with this box, this ark. And you remember that all of a sudden they had tumors all over their bodies and they're dying, they, they, they don't know what to do. You know who they called? The diviners. The witches, the sorcerers. Tell us what we gotta do. We'll make these, these, these tumors out of gold and make some rats, you remember all that? If we do these external things, if we, just do, we might just appease the God, make them out of gold it, because it gotta be valuable. This is so often what people do. But here's the pronouncement upon Saul, who is trying to do things right now, fix the situation, his disobedience by external acts. Well, no, we brought these animals to make a sacrifice to your God. We brought, we have the king of Agog, why? Because that is a trophy for us. Oh, verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the outcome. The words from the prophet, stinging words from the prophet, damning words from the prophet Samuel to Saul. And in verse 24, finally, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared people and obey their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return me, and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Oh, so so apparently there there is an admittance here, there is repentance from Saul, but, but I don't think that he has any godly sorrow here. Because he doesn't say, I, I have sinned against the Lord, let me go, Samuel, wait for me, I'm gonna go make things right. I'm going to clear out the camp, I'm gonna deal with the king Agog, he was supposed to be led to destruction uh, with all these animals, I'm, I, I'm gonna speak to all the men and reveal to them and repent of my sin publicly before them, I have sinned against God, against God first, and then against you. Because that's what a spiritual leader should do. But Saul is not able to do that. He, he refuses to take responsibility. He just wants a ritual apology. Come with me so we could worship the Lord. But just forgive me of this. And Samuel's like, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in going with you anywhere. God has disregarded you. You're no longer the king because you have disregarded the Lord. You are rejected. And you must now be held accountable. A tense moment. Imagine Saul looking at Samuel. What can I do to make this right? You can't. There's nothing you can do. It's over. God is no longer with you. And as Samuel's walking away, 
Saul reaches out and grabs his robe and it tears. Almost as if, as Samuel is regretting, he just tore my robe. He sees that as a metaphor to then tell Saul, your kingdom has been torn completely from you. It is over. Because there's one that is so much better than you. There is one who will save Israel, who will not be rejected by the Lord. And we know that in the immediate future, in the next couple chapters, that better one is David. But don't miss, don't miss the foreshadowing of the one who is ultimately the obedient king, Jesus Christ. The one, the root of David, as we sang, the one who would come to obey completely God's demands, God's law, the one who would come in righteousness in the future, the one who will make things right, the one who all of the world creation is groaning for the day of its redemption, the one who brought satisfaction to the wrath of God. And something very interesting happens in verse 29. After he says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from this day, has given to its neighbors one better than you. He also says in verse 29 that he should, and also the glory of Israel would not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Interesting, verse 29 in comparison to verse 35. And in the very beginning where it says that, and the Lord regretted appointing Saul. And then here he's like, there is no regret in God. It's this reality of God where there's, you know, mo a momentary you know, uh, time and space, regret, mourning for the things that are happening in the moment, yet in the grand scheme of God's economy, everything is filtering through his sovereign hands and permissible only by his will. I think the author is wanting us to see that dynamic about God that we don't need to fully understand. We just have to know that he's God and we're not. And if we, if, if we could figure out the ways of God, we'll put him in a corner and say, got ya, I'm God now. But Saul doesn't get it. Saul doesn't get it, because if you look at verse 30, immediately after that, then he said, I have sinned. Yes, yeah, okay, I have sinned. Yeah, here's what I want you to do, Samuel. Honor me now. Honor me, honor me. Put me before the elders of my people. Put me before Israel. Let them see you with me. Let them see that I still have strength and that I still have power and return with me then so that I could bow before the Lord your God. So for some reason, Samuel turns back after Saul and they go to the Lord together. And life would be easier for us if this chapter ended in verse 31. Because verse 32, what was the intention for Samuel to go with Saul to bow before the Lord? Was it to worship the Lord with his brother? 
No. It was, it was to devote to destruction the things that needed to be devoted to destruction and to do so in the presence of God. Saul, let me show you your sin. So they bring out the king, Agag, who's thinking, oh man, I'm out of the cell. I'm about to go home. And because he is a ruthless murderer himself who left women childless because God has pronounced judgment upon him and his people, it was just it was holy justice for Samuel to chop that guy up and kill him. Divine justice. That's the way the world operated back then. God shows wrath. God's people today were not called to fight with the sword. Our battle in the New Testament things, us having the spirit of God we fight against principalities, against the darkness. We, find, we fight against the enemies, the spiritual enemies of the Lord, demons and Satan himself. We contend in that way. But in this text, we find God's justice through the hands of this prophet and who was, is representative of what God's people were supposed to do in that day that Saul failed to do because he wanted to rob God of his glory because he wanted to be all about him. The contrast is incredible. The king of Israel in this text, miserable, unrepentant, disobedient sinner. And yet the king who is to come, Lord Jesus, the one who is the rightful true king, when he got baptized, the heavens opened up and God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Could never say that of Saul, but could every day to hear to eternity say that about Jesus Christ, the rightful king. So we, as we identify with Saul and his sin, we don't trust and look at Saul or any kind of Saul for our salvation as the requirement for obedience is upon us, that we must fully obey God's law and finding ourselves unable to do so, what is our only choice? God's provision to look towards the Son, the only one in history who has ever obeyed the law of God. The only one in history who has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The only one who stepped into this earth, who lived as a man who was sinless, and yet the only one who was worthy enough to be the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, the only one worthy to carry the sins of God's people so that God would pour his wrath against our sin upon him and that he would take that upon himself, feel the abandonment of the Father to the point of saying, it is finished, it is satisfied. Those who trust in my work, those who... Are a trust in my obedience by faith and faith alone can be freed from the condemnation and live as unto God in obedience. And when you fail because the flesh is weak, you look to Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith, who ran the race before us with perfect obedience so that we could then rest in knowing that we have a glorious Savior and that we have access to God the Father and that eternity is secure for those who trust in Him. And that's what it means to be a Christian. 
So four points of application. As we just wrap this up real quick, we're out of time already. Just write these four things down and take them with you and think about them. Number one, our partial obedience is still disobedience. Look to Jesus. Don't trust in your partial obedience. Jesus said it well in Matthew 16. He told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? God demands all of you. And in our weaknesses, we trust in Jesus. That's why we need him. So your partial obedience that you pride yourself in is still disobedience. Secondly, pride goes before the fall. It's the story of Saul. And it's right out of Proverbs 16, 18, and 19. Pride goes before, the, before destruction and a haughty spirit before it fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Pride is what caused Adam and Eve to fall and Lucifer to fall and pride is the one thing that says I don't need God, I don't need a savior, I'm not that bad, I'm not that bad of a sinner, I could save myself. That will lead to your destruction. Third, right from the text, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. It is better to obey than to depend and trust on ritual and religious fervor. Know that your sin has blinded you and that we're always in the fight to think we're good enough that we've performed some external ritual and even when your theology is right and you understand how wretched you are, in practice, you go that way as well. Oh yes, know that that sacrifice, that ritual avails you nothing, that obedience ultimate Complete obedience is required, so therefore look to Jesus. He's the only one who's obeyed. And lastly, as we seek obedience, let us trust the obedience of Christ. As you seek to live obedient lives as Christians, not for salvation, but because of salvation, as the outflowing working of the Spirit of God in us, seek obedience, because that's in step with the Christian life. That pleases your heavenly father. Put to death the things that are not in step with your true, your true identity in Christ. Live for his glory. Live to please him. And as you do so, as Paul says, what I want to do, I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I find myself doing, who could save me from this wretched flesh? Remind yourself always that as you try to live for Jesus, you will fail, but you can look to Jesus the one whom by faith you have trusted, the one who ran the race perfectly on your, in your stead, and that because of him you have eternal life. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're just working your way there, if you're oh, trying to do ritual and obedience or just hiding and minimizing your sin, that is a dead end. It will lead you nowhere. It will lead to your damnation because then you'll have to face God one day and all you'll have is your own righteousness 
And you'll say, God, here's what I've done. Here are my good deeds. Here are my bad deeds. I hope you take my good deeds more than, no, no, no. Forget your good deeds. Your bad deeds have condemned you. You don't have the righteousness of my son imputed to you because you never trusted in him by faith. This is what you need to do, sinner. You need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus and be saved. No longer trust in your works. No longer trust in your own obedience. Trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one who God sent for sinners like us.